This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Anchoring Truths Podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. Today, I'm joined by our programs manager, Daniel Osborne. And what we thought we would do, because we're coming to the end of 2022, is something similar to what we did after the National Conservatism Conference, where we give our listeners sort of a 50,000-foot view of some of the discussions and the debates that animated in the NatCon context of that conference. But um, with this podcast, we thought we'd kind of take a step back with a view towards the year that was uh, in 2022. What were those debates and discussions that really animated us at JWI um, and the world uh, within the conservative legal movement that we operate in? And so uh, Daniel and I, in preparation for this podcast, we thought to ourselves, if we're going to look back on 2022, what are those uh, notable debates that we thought shot through the whole year. The major one was the Supreme Court's uh, expected decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, um, and then naturally the aftermath of that decision. But we thought we would discuss that through the lens of the debate over uh, a better originalism, the challenge of Adrian Vermeule's common good constitutionalism, also in light of a recent piece that was written in Politico magazine, uh, in which Hadley Arcus, uh, our founder and director, uh, and I were interviewed. Um, and so this is very much uh, fresh. That piece came out, uh, by the way, in mid-December, and we're recording this uh, just about nine days before Christmas. So these debates are fresh. For our uh, for our listeners, we thought that this would be a chance to take a look back at the year, but also um, kind of give you a peek behind the curtain of what's also um, on our minds at present. Yeah. All right. Well, Garrett, first of all, thanks for having me on. appreciate the, the chance to just talk over the year a little bit uh, in particular. First of all, I do want to say uh, Merry Christmas to all of you. Uh, by the time that you're uh, listening to this, it'll probably be a few days after Christmas. We wish you the best and a happy time with your families. Um, but we do want to talk a little bit about the year in particular and and what it is meant for the conservative legal movement. So looking at all of this, I mean, of course, with the Dobbs decision, you have this question of does this actually answer the different challenges that were brought up? I mean, you have Vermeule's challenge to originalism that was brought up beginning in 2020, uh, kind of escalating across 2021. This year in particular, we have common good constitutionalism, this full book expression of what he's bringing forward. Um, and you've had mixed responses to that uh, from people across the board in the conservative legal movement. But then you also have the challenge put forward in A Better Originalism by uh, Professor Arcus, by you, Garrett, and uh, by Josh Hammer, and who's the fourth one on that? Matt, Matt Peterson. Matt Peterson, right. Uh, and that challenge was a little bit different, and perhaps maybe a little bit more nuanced between the two perspectives. And so, of course, there's the question of whether or not Dobbs really answers those questions. I mean, to a certain extent, uh, we know that sometimes Justice Alito writes these opinions in response to what's going on and showing how this kind of jurisprudence lays yeah. out. Now, as far as like how has that changed and affected the debates, I think there is a certain sense of the triumphalism of originalism this year, uh, particularly in the fall. It, it is the, the sense of 
you know, the, the originalist project for so long has been so closely tied to the pro-life project. Uh, it feels like the fulfillment of the pro-life project must then mean that this is the, the fulfillment and the, the end goal of originalism has been met. Now, of course, originalism is independent, at least in theory of that. Um, but it seems like a lot of people have taken this as a, as a fuller uh, confirmation of the success of originalism, particularly mm-hmm. this is a bit of a contrast to what we saw maybe in 2020 when so much of this was uh, upset by the, uh, the Bostock decision put forward by Justice Gorsuch. And perhaps these are two very different kinds of originalism that we see between the, di- the two cases. Or are we seeing Justice Alito responding and maybe trying to clarify out of the Dobbs decision. Well, Justice Gorsuch was in the majority in both Bostock um, and Dobbs. And so now, of course, uh, Gorsuch um, did not write uh, in in Dobbs, uh, whereas he wrote the majority opinion in Bostock. The the Dobbs decision, to take a step back, um, the Dobbs decision was, for a lot of people, thought to be a bit ahead of its time, or at least what a lot of people thought after Justice Barrett was confirmed to the court was that the court would not rush to take a major case on abortion, Uh, in particular uh, a case um, in which on the table was the idea of overturning Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. some of us appreciated the sort of um, immunitizing of what inevitably was going to be um, uh, the challenge at some point. Um, others thought that a more prudential strategy would be a slow chipping away at the support for Roe, the Roe and Casey regime. Mm-hmm. The idea that Dobbs came out of nowhere, though, is a fiction. Uh, Dobbs is really a challenge to what the received wisdom of uh, the left had, uh, you know, the the left had constructed its entire jurisprudence on the idea that Roe was untouchable. Mm -hmm. And, or at least it was the, as uh, Senator Feinstein has said at, no, at numerous Senate hearings, it was the super precedent among other precedents. Uh, it, it, it had um, far more um, uh, untouchable value than um, any other uh, Supreme Court precedent. And so the idea that Dobbs was going to you know, strike at the heart of this was one that a lot of folks in the conservative legal movement were very cautious of um, as a strategy. That said, the idea that overturning Roe v. Wade would mean that abortion would be banned nationally mm-hmm. was completely a fabrication of the activist left. If you talked in conservative circles for decades since Planned Parenthood versus Casey. The assumption was never that overturning Roe v. Wade would mean a judicially imposed ban on nationwide abortion at 
certain points. Mm-hmm. However, what we saw after the Dobbs decision was a $400 million successful messaging campaign to have the public believe that Dobbs actually banned abortion up to certain points right. uh, 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 nationally. When, of course, what that decision actually did was it allowed states to make decisions about when abortion was permitted and uh, when it was not permitted, uh, while also throwing it open to the Congress to decide what at the federal level would be those um, uh, 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 points at which abortion was permitted or or not permitted. But let's remember, our, our kind of role in this debate was within the conservative movement and Justice Alito was conservative legal movement. And Justice Alito, of course, had to think about more than just the conservative legal movement. So when I say that the decisions that were on the table for the conservative justices were ones of prudential, slowly chipping away at Roe, or if we're going to have to overturn, if, if we want to overturn this at some point because we think this is bad law, is it easier to just rip the Band-Aid off? And so that was really, I think, the first order question Mm -hmm. for Justice Alito. Second order concerns, the concerns that we opened this podcast talking about, are, I think, very, very helpful going forward. But I don't want our listeners to be confused into into thinking that Justice Alito was thinking about the concerns of... uh, uh, the, the the type that sort of we put forth, mm-hmm. um, because I think what we put forth are concerns about the coherence for the long term project of restoring what we call you know moral coherence and right, right. Uh, the idea that law and morality are inextricably bound up. That mm-hmm. um, that was not going to be solved then and there with the Dobbs decision, but I think what we've had in the months since Dobbs is. A sort of mini series uh, in which we've seen episodes sort of play out, and it hasn't been wholly reassuring. You know, we haven't seen people after Dobbs on our side recognize that while this opinion may have been a step in the right direction, it wasn't the end of history. Right, right. And I, I'm glad that you brought up the point, particularly of working through the law and the the question of do we chip away at this or do we take this as a as a whole cohesive uh, effort to, to bring Roe down entirely. I remember uh, some of our, our affiliated scholars, particularly uh, Professor Jerry Bradley, earlier in the year when we had the Dobbs leak, uh, he wrote several articles. And one of the big ones that he was talking about was this question of could the court find a middle ground mm-hmm. somewhere between the viability line put forward by, uh, by, by the, the liberals on the court and somewhere between that and full protection up to conception? Could they find a rational line somewhere in there? And his, his hope with this was that this sense of moral reasoning, what we, what we work for uh, primarily here mm-hmm. at the James Wilson Institute, that understanding of reality, the understanding of where could one even draw an actual line in prenatal childhood, uh, 
where could that be drawn? And, and his, his argument was is that you couldn't really draw one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he hoped that the yeah. court would recognize that and that, that would push them towards that decision of, well, we can't really chip away at this beyond simply saying this is merely a prudential step. But instead, Alito took more of that morally coherent position saying that the, the logic of the, the position itself, the logic of the argument itself, needed to have that coherence to reality. Um, and that, that was gratifying, certainly, to mm-hmm. see, particularly from our perspective. Um, now, as far as how has this played out since then, and the question of, is originalism still the kind of defining point of view, that seems to still be up in the air. Dobbs doesn't seem to have fully answered the question, at least for the people who've been raising the questions. I mean, Adrian Vermeule's still been talking about this. Hadley Arcus, I mean, of course, has been talking about this for, for 50 years now. This hasn't changed. Um, and the, the question has not been foreclosed. Uh, but as far as what that means going forward, maybe it means that originalism, at least under Alito's example, uh, has shown that it can consist with moral coherence. And maybe that leads us closer to the, the position for, put forward by a better originalism. Um, that article that you all published. So I don't know if it does. I will say that what Alito's opinion successfully does, though, is it allows for the kind of moral and and legal reasoning to be performed at, in the wake of Dobbs. Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm not sure if by the terms of the Dobbs opinion, however, we can classify it as anything other than consistent from premises that were put in place by people that are not as concerned with um, moral coherence so much as just legal consistency. I think what Dobbs is doing is it's saying that we live in this imperfect system in which certain rights are grounded using history and tradition and, and, and using the due process clause. And so through this kind of Rube Goldberg machine of the due process clause and past precedent under the due process clause, um, rooting our uh, rights in the nation's, uh, you know, histories and history and tradition, uh, that the court is far more comfortable with protecting the ability of states to legislate on what are considered to be live issues as opposed to rights firmly rooted in the history and tradition. The history tradition standard was reaffirmed um, most famously in the 1997 case Washington versus Glucksburg. The type of analysis that Justice Alito performed in the Dobbs opinion draws on that type of parallel. The difference between the Alito opinion in Dobbs, though, and other opinions, which, again, Clarence Thomas's uh, concurrence in Dobbs makes um, reference to, is that he does see abortion as unique in in involving um, the presence of another um, rights-bearing being, which which he says, do not take the Dobbs decision as jeopardizing those decisions on Con- the availability of contraception, talking yep. about Griswold versus Connecticut, mm-hmm. um, the the um, Obergefell, uh, Obergefell decision on same-sex marriage. Right. Um, nonetheless, the left has 
raised alarms about the mm-hmm. substantive due process reasoning. Um, and uh, I think, you know, in all candor, um, they've rightly said that this really depends on just the um, sustainability of a um, durable uh, 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 Republican majority on, on the court. And so they've, they've acted to um, codify um, uh, what they've said. Uh, but just to get back to the larger question of what do we make of the Dobbs opinion um, and whether it's in, in, in concert with what we put forth in a better originalism mm-hmm. or what um, Adrian Vermeule um, you know, has been um, uh, arguing, I think it, it relies on, and this is where we and Vermeule coincide, it relies on assuming that original public meaning originalism, the mainstream originalism, originalism that's been practiced, is assuming a form of moral either neutrality and a recognition that legal positivism is our law, right? This is the the triumph then of Justice Holmes and and Justice Hugo Black. When we talk about originalism, we are carefully avoiding any kind of thick sense of morality that undergirds what we enact into positive law and what judges must necessarily judge positive law against. What we argue is that you are likely to get the kind of rulings in Bostock with far more frequency if you cannot give a coherent account of what Jay Budashevsky says, those things we cannot not know. Mm-hmm. We're then deliberately placing ourselves in a position where our laws don't have the kind of foundations that at least, I think, half the country thinks grants them legitimacy. Right, right. Well, and I know that's been one thing that we've observed with some frustration is when this question from the Dobbs decision was moved then over to the states, the state legislatures, and, and even the, uh, the, the congressional legislature, um, you have, of course, that question of, does this then fall under 14th Amendment protections? That wasn't an argument picked up by the court, even though we had friends who put that forward. You know, you have con- congressional uh, uh, legislators who are trying to pick up this idea, um, in particular, Lindsey Graham's efforts to put things forward uh, and on the table. And now you have actions coming from the left as well over trying to legislate on the same question. Mm-hmm. Uh what we've observed with some frustration is as people have become over the past 40 years or so accustomed to pick up the originalist argument of saying, well, it's not in the constitution. It isn't a constitutional right. Ergo, the states should decide now that the states can decide. Yeah. People aren't in practice as much as they maybe used to have been in arguing and understanding the moral reasoning that actually would support this kind of legislator action to bring abortion to a close. Yeah. It's, it's a very different comparison to, say, the abolitionist movement of the, uh, the 1800s, mm-hmm. uh, where the moral question was front and center mm-hmm. for so long. Now, by no means am, am I saying that the entire pro-life movement rests solely on originalism. It yeah. clearly hasn't. We've yeah. got many admirable friends who've been doing yeah. fantastic work for so long. But the problem is, is that we've also seen where the legislative actors now have picked up these ideas and they aren't useful to them anymore. Uh, and, and maybe they weren't ready for this transition and being mm-hmm. handed that. Um, 
thus we've seen some of our frustrations. The um, it was it was Kansas, right, that had the yeah. Uh, the referendum. This was 20, oh, 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 sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it, right. Kansas had started with a bad Supreme Court ruling in yep. 2019 in which um, the uh, Supreme Court in Kansas read the Declaration of Independence, uh, promise of, of the pursuit of happiness um, to um, you know support the idea of a right to abortion. Right. Um, and then um, it was only, as you say, uh, in uh, 2022 when that was put up for a referendum. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the wake of Dobbs, the um, surge of uh, energy was really with um, the uh, pro-abortion um, yeah. side. And so even in a quote-unquote red state, come out in support of the um, reading that the tech, uh, that the Kansas Supreme Court had made in 2019 yeah and and maybe that means for the most part what we what we should be seeing and I think what we are actually seeing is the pro-life movements across the individual states are are realizing this this problem and are shifting gears and they're they're understanding this they're shifting the, their mm. gears they're shifting the arguments that are being put forward and and they'll kind of regain their footing and keep moving forward and maybe that's one of the things that we can expect and we can hope for but it's it of course raises the question of but what if the court had instead put those kinds of arguments forward and made the morally coherent arguments so that people were ready to pick that up yeah so it's been a very different story so I, 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 I think you I think I think you you raise uh, you know several important points uh, and even though the court in Dobbs did what I think a lot of us would consider to be a a good gesture, um, but not a great one, um, let's make sure we acknowledge that the justices on the court personally went through enormous professional and personal strain, and that was even before the leak in oh, May yes. oh, yes. uh, of the opinion in which then their lives were, were were jeopardized. And let's be clear that the originalist shift over the years is a shift towards a more fixed sense of what is the proper role of interpreting statutes in light of their um, underlying meaning as opposed to meaning that is imposed on those statutes. Let's let's be clear that you know, when we say a better originalism, we aren't seeking to wholly abandon or- originalism. No, no and, I don't. And so, therefore, you know, the most charitable reading I think we could have of Dobbs is that what Justice Alito has done is he's given the kind of basis for which either lower court judges or, you know, state legislators, um, maybe even state appellate and then Supreme Court justices, mm-hmm. that they can coherently say that the Dobbs opinion allows us to take the next step because it recognizes right up to the point of all but like saying it outright that we have another rights-bearing being that is worthy of legal protection and it is up to you know our citizens to decide you know, the line at which we're going to protect those citizens, th- those, um, you know, members of, uh, you know, the category of unborn persons. Yep. Our concern is that 
even as the Dobbs decision has done good work, it's still very much an open question whether or not that opinion was from its own premises morally coherent. I do think it's legally consistent. My deep concern is that if you rely on originalism to mean legal positivism, you are making, an, I think, an intentionally more modest exercise of judging, which we think that uh, you know judges are co-equal branch holders, and you know their their goal as the one branch that sort of does its um, stock and trade through the the giving of reasons and not horse trading like the other two branches. <laughs> Um, they should come forth with the the most coherent reasons. Um, that's where our concern really lies. Right. Yeah. Right. And I mean, again, like we were saying, we're we're dealing with this question of a a highly charged topic and a highly charged uh, decision that the the court had to make. And at the end of the day, maybe it was the right choice to uh, not necessarily chip away at Roe but to chip away at the kind of culture of Roe through Mm -hmm. the decision and leave continuing to chip away at that to later decisions down the road. Maybe that is the more coherent way of understanding this as this is a a coherent logic of law, but as far as a coherent moral understanding of the law, this is the first step. Right, and welcome back. Uh, thanks so much for uh, keeping with us and keeping listening. We're, we're going to shift our discussion a little bit. I know our, our previous discussion kind of centered around the year and the conservative legal movement and uh, the way that things have changed or maybe shifted over 2022. Uh, but as part of our, our work here at the James Wilson Institute, we do a lot of work with some of the younger attorneys, particularly at our James Wilson Fellowship over the summer. Um, those summer discussions are uh, kept confidential, but we do want to give you a sense of kind of the pulse of how have things shifted because we've been doing this for, this is what, the ninth class that we've done here at the James Wilson Institute. And so over almost a decade now of this, we've seen something of a, a shift in the conversation, uh, particularly even what fellows are willing to open up and talk about. Uh, now, for those of you who are maybe unfamiliar with the program, uh, this is a fellowship that's run primarily for people who are just finishing up law school or within a few years of graduating law school um, and heading into or just coming out of uh, judicial clerkships of some form. Uh, some have been working in various departments uh, of federal or state um, uh, uh litigation work, um, whereas others have been going into uh, pro bono work or something with a public interest firm. Others, of course, are going into major law firms. So we get a a diversity of people that come through these programs. Um, But something that we've noticed over the time is that kind of shift, particularly the question of where is the Overton window now? And this kind of ties into our discussion in the previous segment about originalism and about what is really the role of the judge and what is the role of these young attorneys, particularly as they're beginning to shape and craft uh, what their careers are going to look like over the next 20 to 30 years. Um, and so, Garrett, you, you know, you've been here much longer than I have. You know, Can you give a sense of like what these classes used to be like and maybe how things have changed? 
where there was either a majority or, or at least a plurality of fellows who were dubious that a jurisprudence of natural law was either possible or even practicable, there's now a durable majority that assumes that this is inevitably going to be part of the work of a judge. And then the question is, really, prudentially, when does the judge have to justify those opinions with explicit references to ultimate values Mm. because the tools in the standard um, judicial toolkit don't do the work. And so what we are pleased with is that there are fellows that now come into the program without this kind of Uh, best way to describe it would be like if you were in a if you were in a trench and a defensive mentality there's there's this willingness to engage and with that willingness to engage comes much more sort of free-flowing talk about judicial statesmanship Um, in the a better originalism statement we referenced a An argument made in the 1970s by the political scientist Ralph Lerner at the University of Chicago, which urged judges to be Republican schoolmasters in the model of John Marshall, in that it's part of the role of the judge to explain, and the only way you can explain, sorry, it's part of the role of the judge to explain why certain structures are in place. What are those reason uh, deliberations that went into why we have you know certain office holders, why we have certain um, uh, practices. And so part of those duties of uh, being a, a judge um, has to be to explain to the citizenry so they understand you know why there's this you know intelligibility to what uh, a judge is doing. Um, but this is also key, explain to the other branch holders what it is that they, as sort of the fullest inhabitors of those other branches, what they are capable of doing. To to sort of explain, like, I can go this far as a judge because I am, you know, uh, bound by the, um, uh, the case that's before me. But you as an executive, or you as a legislator, um, you may do the following. Um, and so um, what we saw our, our fellows talking a lot more about this year than in past years was just kind of a, a healthy recognition that a lot more work has to be done to get the reasoning right, because the reasoning will be what ultimately persuades the other branches, um, and also the citizenry about the legitimacy of the laws we live under. And there was, you know, healthy disagreement on um, just, you know, what would be prudential and what would not be. Um, But the idea that we can kind of keep doing what we've been doing was 
sort of roundly dismissed. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a fair point. As far as the kind of the baseline, usually across the fellowship, we start with, you know, we go through the arguments of what natural law is, why it is essential, why judges have to use it, in fact, are continually using it, whether they will say it or not. You know, this this concept of law, the logic of law and the logic of morality are rather inextricable. Um, and usually we spend the first couple days making that argument. Whereas with these, with this last class and, and maybe the, the past couple leading up to it, that's kind of been just accepted, at least as a starting premise, mm-hmm. that this is something that is, is essential to law. But what they continually repeat to us, though, is we know that this is important. We know that judges have to do this. We know that we, in that we get involved in clerkships or maybe judging someday, we know that we will have to do this ourselves, but nobody's taught us how to do it yet. Mm -hmm. And nobody's given us example of what this actually looks like. And so the discussion over the over these past couple of years has moved to that second stage much more rapidly to yeah. the question of what does this look like when we take it through the lens of racial discrimination and what does that actually look like and how do we discern between what is uh, legitimate discernment in a particular position or right. what is uh, a discrimination that is based on a determinism about a person based on color, sex, etc. And so being able to move to those deeper questions more rapidly has been gratifying to watch uh, and very interesting to see. Well, yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point because, you know, so often uh, practitioners of conservative jurisprudence will be content with just saying, aha, it's not in the text or aha, look, um, it is it, it is written in the 14th Amendment. Um, therefore, um, we, you know, the 14th Amendment was written to be colorblind. Therefore, you know, discrimination based on race uh, at, at all is, is unconstitutional without tapping into that deeper reasoning that it is wrong to hold people blameworthy for actions or characteristics that they're powerless to affect. And if you do so, you are imputing with deterministic force a moral culpability on somebody for acts that they were powerless to affect. Where would that be true? Anywhere. Everywhere. Would it be true even if we didn't have the 14th Amendment? Of course. So it's also getting them to think about this idea of amendments as not like (laughs) tablets that have been handed down from on high. But Randy Barnett actually makes a pretty uh, convincing argument that amendments are more like political corrections that speed up the process by which bad judicial rulings or poorly crafted legislation can, can like you know, persist. Mm-hmm. And as we know with the 13th, 14th, the 15th Amendments, sometimes the, the, the wrong is so egregious that you know even after a war is fought, like you still need them in place because you have yeah. to stamp out that just you know bad reasoning um, because it's just you know burrowed into so many um, uh, uh, you know, areas of society. And that's fine. Uh, and, you know, regrettably, that's needed in a lot of places. But uh, this is uh, an argument that uh, Professor Arcus likes to bring up. Um, because of the presence of those, what we would call, like, the positive laws of the Constitution, um, we don't just acknowledge that because it's written down there that its coherence is sort of self-apparent, right? right. We 
have to, sorry, the judge in particular has to explain, you know, what is the deeper coherence behind that, uh, you know, principle that's articulated here. Um, Sometimes, as we know, laws are less, you know, uh, 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 creations of, um, you know, distilled reasoning. For example, um, we all know that on the highway, 35, 45, 55 MPH, those numbers don't have any kind of moral significance. But it only, but, but, but they command our respect because of a deeper proposition that it is unjust to put life in harm's way um, without some kind of uh, overriding justification. And so right. it's our job, like you were just saying, it's our job to actually give the examples of like what are those better um, opinions that have been written? You know, yes. what we like to say here is that we're not seeking to actually change law. We're not seeking to, you know, create something brand new. We're looking to restore those principles that animated the American founders as they set out to build the Constitution. Um, like these have always been with us, but we're seeking to restore them for our own day, really. Yeah. And what we've not, you know, been, what, what, what we've been pleased by, what's been nice, has been seeing that there's a willingness among our fellows to just sort of do more work to justify what are the, you know, uh, requirements of the jobs that they're in. You know, there, there's an interest in not just kind of being lawyers that are seeking to get through the day, right? They, they, they're really trying to either be successful advocates for their clients, be, you know, uh, great drafters of opinions for their, for their judges. Um, in some cases, they're still in law school, which is amazing considering, uh, you know, the, uh, the accomplishments of, of some of our fellows already. Mm -hmm. Um, but they, they're hungry. They want to do this work. And it's just, it's really fulfilling to see. Yeah, no, absolutely. The, the way that the fellows have been diving into these discussions and really starting to push rather than at the, um, uh, kind of the, the edges of the argument as it were, or like the, the beginning foundations, but rather willing to take it and run with it a little bit further and say, okay, how does this apply in this kind of a situation? And if we analyze it from a different perspective and start putting these things uh, together and trying to put wheels on these ideas as as they're learning them uh, it's been exceptionally gratifying to see that I'm, I'm curious then I mean obviously you know we're, we're working here at the James Wilson Institute and a lot of our work is dedicated to this idea of reviving the legal culture overall um, and we want to revive that understanding of law the way that lawyers worked um, during the founder, the founding generation, it wasn't divorced from a concept of morals or a philosophical understanding, or more particularly, it wasn't divorced from a concept of fundamental reality, uh, broadly understood. Yeah, and we want to bring that back, but there's not a lot of other organizations that have been doing this kind of work. We're, we're a little bit on our own on this one um, in, in various fields. And so I guess the biggest question here is, okay, we're seeing a change for these fellows to a certain extent, even before they get to us at the, at the fellowship. What do we think might be driving that change? Um, is this the success of the overall project? Is this um, 
maybe just what we were talking about of the the weakening uh, perspective of originalism's hold in the legal right, or might there be something else going on that is pushing these fellows to be already open to these conversations before they even get to talking to us? So the success of the mainstream, whatever you want to call it, the original public meaning, um, positivist originalist project has been, I think, twofold. First, it's that it's relatively easy to have rhetorically uh, explained, even by non-lawyers, mm-hmm. right? Like the law says what it says and nothing more. Right. Um, the law um, uh, does not um, you know, empower judges to impute meaning um, where it doesn't, you know, explicitly say. Uh, it, it rests on a very simple premise. That is the rejection of philosophical nominalism. It's mm-hmm. the idea that words have meaning, and if mm-hmm. we agree on words, then that actually has a bearing on our legal discussion. Right. And anyone that you talk to can understand that and understand the importance of that. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, and that's, again, why I think there's a sort of debt that has to be paid for the people who came before the modern, you know, conservative legal movement. Um, we're talking about folks in the, the 60s and the 70s um, who were confronting the excesses of the, the Berger and the Warren court in particular, um, and in general, um, how much wreckage had been caused by, for example, legislative history as opposed to enacted text. Um, you know, controlling the, you know, interpretations of these um, edge cases um, that would, um, you know, arise in our, uh, in our courts. And that original public meaning originalism sort of limited the worst, um, you know, sort of excesses uh, from getting worse. But I think there's a, a, a strong countercurrent, and that countercurrent comes from people that now look at our legal order as not being as neutral as they thought it was maybe growing up. And so if there is this perception that our legal orders, quote unquote, neutrality still in the, you know, in the Bostock case um, mandates that uh, we reject, you know, the reality of the two sexes, um, then there is a need for deeper reasoning than what exists on the surface. And so I think part of what we've been discussing today is a broader appreciation for the inevitability of having to do the kind of moral reasoning as legal reasoning Mm -hmm. that we do at JWI. But the real question is, how do you do it with discipline? And so, you know, if I was to say, like, what is the sort of the intellectual kernel, you know, uh, that we are, are always having to wrestle with? It's really this, you know, question of when you talk about doing natural law jurisprudence how are you staying disciplined? Because we don't have in mind empowering the judge to do any kind of what we would consider to be results-based um, judging 
that the left would want us to do. And so, you know, when we talk about what our fellows are are most interested in, they're really interested in not there's they're, they're as interested as I think many of their friends who are you know more um, uh, mainstream originalists um, at putting in place a jurisprudence that just doesn't you know that doesn't just give license um, for any you know kind of reasoning altogether. Um, but I think because we've just you know we've been out of practice for so long. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, in doing a jurisprudence of natural law, or at least assuming a natural law basis for our our jurisprudence. Um, inevitably, just like if your car is in a ditch on the side of the road, you don't just go from the ditch to the highway. You have to ride on that um, uh, breakdown lane, which is a little bumpy for a little <laughs> while. Got to ride on that for a little while, get your bearings, and then you can get back on the highway. So I, I would hope that we are somewhere now out of the ditch. And we're working out, you know, the kinks. I would say it's maybe a better analogy would be we're flexing atrophied muscles. Mm. Yeah. Before before we close up, I do want to talk a little bit about kind of what we're looking forward to. Obviously, this whole episode has been a discussion of well, what is the year that was? What is 2022? But what do we hope to see from 2023? Obviously, we were saying, you know, this is something where we want to see another class that is energetic, that's ready to discuss about natural law and the questions of where that applies and where that sits in our law and furthering that conversation. But as far as what else we're hoping to see over the next year, we obviously have some court cases coming up. There's a Harvard mm-hmm. case uh, that I believe the court is yeah. considering. Um, and uh, obviously some other cases that are going to be on some of these questions uh, that have moral weight and moral meaning. But then also, for those who aren't aware, uh, Professor Arcus has been working on a book to be released yeah. in, the, in the spring. That's where it's, it's planned for currently. We'll be updating people as best we can. Um, but that's, that's more of an idea of taking natural law and making it uh, accessible for the everyday man to pull apart and to read and to understand this, because this is fundamentally speaking an argument that should be able to be understood by the common man on the street. Um, and that's something that we're excited about for the coming year. Um, and hopefully we'll be part of this ongoing discussion moving forward. But Garrett, what do you, what do you foresee for 2023? Um, I'm Dan, I'm glad you brought up uh, mere natural law. That's uh, Hedley Arcus's forthcoming book. Um, I think that will generate the kinds of you know discussions that we hope will continue to educate um, and, um, further um, enlighten uh, our discourse. I think what I'm most looking forward to will be more lawyers and and judges and ordinary citizens realizing that the culture does not just magically get shaped, right? Um, we are all kind of part of building expectations into, you know, our leaders, um, but then also how we respond to those, um, uh, you know, either decisions of the court, how they respond to, you know, popular legislation that's been proposed. Um, This is all part of what we would consider to be um, civic life that helps drive, you know, what is the realm of what's possible. Um, I think what I'm most looking forward to uh, will be how 
in general, we um, confront the rise of a rival ethic. Um, and I'm talking about how we now, you know, have uh, out and out questioning of whether or not equality is a um, foundational principle for this country. I mean, I mean, it isn't just the Harvard case um, and dealing with race. I mean, we have in our institutions now uh, administrators who are devoted to the idea of replacing equality with equity. Um, and the perniciousness of this idea extends to, um, or at least it can extend to, you know, a whole variety of other areas where instead of equality of um, opportunity, we now have um, uh, bureaucratically determined um, measures of outcome, um, which are to be achieved. It's almost like we have the outcome that we want, and we're going to do everything in our power now to steer um, uh, decision-making and, and steer um, you know, activity um, towards. Um, I think this will be one of the central challenges of our time. And what I'm looking forward to is just kind of embracing this, um, you know, this, this fight, because I think it gets to what we would consider to be, you know, the core issues. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think you can just dismiss it as, ha ha, like, <laughs> we are, uh, you know, we're just dealing with some, you know, uh, crazy wokesters or something like that. I mean, no, I think I think it's a it's a very sharp challenge, um, and I think um, how we respond to it is is going to be very telling. I mean, the good thing is I think you know our our great natural law tradition gives us the tools by which we can um, intelligently respond. Um, now, of course, you know some people will will accuse like ah that's just a Catholic thing or you know look you're just using you know those those uh, uh, those arguments because, uh, you know, you're in a position of power. We've heard that all before. It certainly doesn't dispute the underlying coherence of those arguments, um, right? It's question begging. It's, it's um, right. you know, mot it, it, it's, uh, you know, imputing motives. Um, so I think we're just going to have to be courageous. We're going to have to make these arguments um, in the public square. I hope our lawyers and judges do. Um, I hope they don't, you know, sit back passively. Um, but... Um, yeah, uh, I'm hopeful, but only cautiously optimistic. Right, right. Well, a lot to look forward to, mm -hmm. a lot to anticipate, and um, we'll see where things go. Mm -hmm. To each of our listeners, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. We're glad that you were able to take some time uh, to be with us and, and talk with us a little bit about these, these questions. Uh, and we'd be curious, of course, to hear from any of you if... Uh, if you're listening to this on one of the various uh, podcast applications, you know, drop drop a comment. Uh, give us your thoughts. We'd be interested to hear what you have to say. Uh, but to all of you, thank you so much for joining us. Merry Christmas to you all. A happy New Year. And we'll look forward to uh, seeing you again in the coming year. Thanks so much. Have a great day. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.